May I have your attention, please? May I have your attention, please? Will the real Fiona Healy please stand up? I repeat, will the real Fiona Healy please stand up? We're going to have a problem here. The Fiona Show, formerly known as The Jobcast. With Fiona Healy, 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 and Fiona Healy. The Fiona Show, April 2018 edition. Hello and welcome back to The Fiona Show. I'm Fiona and joining me in the studio are Fiona and Fiona. Now, Fiona, this is your first time joining us on the Jodcast, isn't it? Well, you appeared in the pantomime uh, episode of December Extra, but uh, this is your, your first time presenting. So do you want to give a quick introduction to yourself? Uh, yes, hello, I'm Fiona. I'm first year PhD student and I'm working on um, machine learning, especially to improve methods which use Faraday rotation in observing magnetism in the universe. All interesting stuff. In the show this time, Fiona Healy and Fiona Healy interview Fiona Healy about Novi and the genesis of the Fiona show, and Fiona Healy, Fiona Healy and Fiona Healy take a look at what's happening in the April night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Fiona Healy with this month's news. In the news this month, Aerial Space Mission announced as ESA's next mid-class space mission. Galaxy rotation curves uh, reveal something interesting about the universe. And stellar astronomy news, we have some really interesting metals kicking around in the center of our galaxy. In our main story, Ariel, a mission to study the formation and evolution of exoplanets, has been chosen by the European Space Agency to be its next medium-class space mission. The launch is scheduled for 2028, and the mission will fly for four years, observing over 1,000 exoplanets during that time. Aerial, which stands for Atmospheric Remote Sensing Exoplanet Large Survey, aims to carefully study the chemical makeup of the atmospheres of exoplanets of all sizes, from super-Earths to Jupiter-sized planets. The observations will be carried out at both infrared and optical wavelengths using a meter-class telescope. Although nearly 4,000 exoplanets have so far been discovered, not much is known about them. Ariel will study a large fraction of these in order to gain a better understanding of these different worlds. The chemical and thermal information obtained from the exoplanet atmospheres will give us a better understanding of how exoplanets form and grow, as well as the internal composition. Ariel Consortium Project Manager Paul Eccleston had this to say. It is wonderful news that ESA has selected Ariel for the next medium-class science mission. The team are very excited to have the opportunity to realize the mission we've been developing over the last two years. Ariel will revolutionize our understanding of how planetary systems form and evolve, helping us to put our own solar system into context and compare it to our neighbors in the galaxy. In other news, a team of scientists using radio, optical, and ultraviolet observations has recently discovered that galaxies have a set rotation period regardless of their size. The study of over 100 galaxies, ranging from small, irregularly shaped dwarfs to large spirals, revealed that the galaxies take about a billion years to rotate once at the outskirts of their disks. The team also found that the outer edges of the galaxies studied contained populations of older stars and not just the young stars, dust and gas they were expecting. These galaxies were shown to have a clearly defined edge, 
which will go a long way towards defining search areas for galaxy studies for upcoming survey projects such as the Square Kilometre Array. And lastly, in stellar astronomy news, the cluster of stars surrounding the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy has been shown to have unusually high levels of rare elements. High levels of vanadium, scandium and yttrium have been found in the stars in the nucleus of the Milky Way. Scandium and vanadium are produced in supernova explosions and yttrium is made in asymptotic giant branch stars. It is not clear at this stage what causes the overabundance of these elements in the cluster. However, the presence of these elements in such high levels could mean that the stars in the nuclear cluster are a completely different stellar population from the rest of the stars in the Milky Way. Thanks for that, Fiona. Now, Fiona Healy and Fiona Healy have an extended interview with Fiona Healy about Novae, the genesis of the Fiona Show and life after astronomy. Uh, this segment contains giggling and some listeners may find that distressing. Hello, I'm Fiona and I'm here with Fiona and joining us in the studio today we have a world exclusive. We have the real Fiona Healy. Uh, so, hello Fiona, how, how are you? Uh, I'm good, thanks Fiona. <laughs> Excellent Fiona. Um, right, so <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic to have you back here on the show because uh, some of our regular listeners may recognise Fiona as the Fiona Healy. How are you? What are you doing with yourself now that you've left the Jodcast behind? Right, well, uh, I'm, I'm very good, thanks. And uh, i got to say, it's really weird to be on this side of the microphone. It's, uh, <laughs> and I should say for our listeners, I'm actually not directly in front of the microphone. Um, I am Skyping with the microphone, in fact. Yeah, you're, you're, uh, yeah. you're about 270 kilometres behind about, the microphone? Yeah, about that, yeah, yeah. But Fiona and Fiona have very kindly, um, to make me feel comfortable and at home in the studio, have placed the computer exactly where I would be sitting if I was actually in the studio um, on the other side of the microphone. So uh, I, I assure you it was mostly for our convenience and not yours. Yeah, well, that that also makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you were familiar with the layout of the Jodcast studio, you'd understand why. But anyway, yeah, no, I'm very well, thanks, although I'm a little bit tired because I've just come home from work and I'm in London. I'm in London now and I'm working uh, in a real job. I've grown up. What's one of those? So my job, so what, what I'm doing now is I'm working for the civil service and I'm actually working in, in a slightly ironic twist given my nationality. I'm working in the department for exiting the European Union. Oh, uh, okay. Okay, so how yeah. much are you actually allowed to tell us? Is there a plan? Um, I mean, basically nothing. I can tell you that I was hired because background of Astrophysics was surprisingly relevant <laughs> to the civil service. Oh, really? um, well, because you see, because um, because a lot of what I did was data visualization, uh, which though applied to radio and obey, actually can be applied to anything. So yeah, so uh, although I haven't been doing much of that yet, I've only been working there for about a week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So I I suppose we should actually, as an attempt at some sort of astrophysics podcast, mm. we probably <laughs> should ask you a little bit of astrophysics. So. You've always been on the same side of the mic as we have, so it's time now to tell us about what you actually do. So while you were what here, what I Mike, actually do? Well, I've alluded to it over the years, although I never really liked discussing it when I was doing it, because you know. <laughs> but now that it's over and in the past, I can talk about it. So, so yeah, I recently had my viva. Well, not recently anymore, before Christmas. Now I had my viva and became a doctor of radio astronomy, uh, and my thesis title, goodness now. What was it now? Radio observations 
and modeling of classical nova explosions. That was my, that was what my thesis was about. And so what it was was a nova. God, I don't know. Darn is, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've talked about what a nova is before on the show, but actually a lot of people, and even a lot of astronomers don't know what a nova is. And people are like, is it a nova and a supernova? Yeah, you no know, one knows. It's, they're actually not the same at all. So oh. before, before when, when telescopes were kind of, people didn't really know what they were doing, they, they would see these big flashy, explodey things, and they were all called That's novas. That's a technical term. I hope it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is. It is. Well, that was the technical term uh, until they decided to call them novas, because it's like a new star, a nova. Um, oh, okay. That's the technical term. They were all called novas, anything that was really bright and not always there was called a nova. But then when telescopes kind of got a bit better, and specifically when astronomers developed the capacity to determine with a bit of accuracy how far away things were, they discovered that even though lots of things looked bright and flashy, some were so far away that they'd have to be really, really bright in order to even be seen. So they realized that of all the bright, flashy things they were looking at, some of them just had to be so much brighter than the others. So those became known as supernovae. Okay, uh, okay. Super bright, flashy things. And the rest were just called novae. And so now we understand. So then, like, they didn't know. Like, they knew what a supernova was, but they didn't know what the other things were at all. They were like, okay, well, we know what these really bright ones are. but this, And they worked out, you know, what a supernova was about, which is, you know, the death of a star and it explodes and it becomes black hole and whatever. Boring, but uh, but boring compared to novae, in my opinion. <laughs> so now they know that novae are are actually something entirely different to that. So while a supernova is the death of a star, uh, a nova is actually kind of business as usual for the star. So it's when a star kind of has a little explosion and then just goes back to normal. Oh, so um, sort of a like a flare or. Yeah, well, I suppose we're kind of at the really boring categorization part of the conversation yeah. here. So, <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of things called cataclysmic variables, which are basically all these leftover bright flashy things that aren't supernovae. And in fact, I think supernovae are cataclysmic variables too, actually. I, yeah, oh. I, I thought a cataclysmic variable was anything that changed was a result of something mm, cataclysmic. Okay. Like yeah, that. exactly. Well, novae wouldn't be recurrent, obviously. No. No, and, and, not, and even novae aren't always recurrent, although... Sometimes there. It seems so wonderfully vague. <laughs> yeah. well, that may be partly because my brain is totally fried after an eleven-hour day in the office. It's fine for you. It's like yeah. we can go with it. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I've done my viva and I've deleted all this information. <laughs> We'll come, we'll come on to that, actually, yeah. like, anyway. But, um, so is this what we have to look forward to, Fiona and me? Yeah, this is, is what this your brain is going to turn into when you're dying. It's going to just all go turn into moisture. It's terrible. So anyway, ANOVA, it's a star in a binary system. So I'll, I'll just talk about specifically what they are. So it's a star in a binary system. And the binary system goes round and round and round. And one star creeps material from the other star and hoovers it all up. And essentially what happens is the accreted material forms a layer on top of the accreting star. So it forms this nice layer in the surface. And the more stuff gets dumped on there, the denser. Now I've got to be careful because there's all this weird stuff with degeneracy. It's boring to think about why the layer is degenerate, but it is. So, so the, the accreted material, uh, it's, it's degenerate gas. Uh, and the reason that, the reason that's important is because 
it kind of gets hotter and hotter and hotter, but because of the way degenerate material behaves, the increase in temperature doesn't... So, you know, with a regular gas, uh, increasing the temperature causes it to expand. But with a degenerate gas, that's not the case because there's no dependency on temperature in the equation of state. So you can heat it up, uh, you can make it really, really hot, and essentially it'll just kind of sit there. And it'll just keep sitting there. And eventually it gets hot enough that nuclear reactions can start happening inside it. So there's kind of like a flashpoint where it, it becomes really, really hot. And at some point on the surface, a nuclear explosion takes place. And that, in the wave of nuclear reactions, triggers a whole bunch of other nuclear reactions until the whole thing, the whole layer, is basically this kind of exploding nuclear nightmare layer. And That's um really cool. It, yeah. So, no, it is. So, so is it kind of, is it like the, so at the centre of the star you've got fusion? Is it like and, that but on oh, the surface? I, I should have cleared that up. It's a white dwarf. Oh, it's a white dwarf. Yeah, so it's not doing much. But you have this crazy layer um, surrounding it that's, like, exploding. And it can do that for a while. Well, when I say a while, I mean a few seconds. Because the degenerate gas, like I was saying, it can get hotter and hotter and hotter and not really change its volume. Because with the non-degenerate gas, obviously, once it got a little bit hotter, it would expand and cool. But that's not happening here. So it's just these, these perfect conditions for it to get really, really hot. But with degenerate gas, there's this kind of tipping point called the Fermi temperature, which is connected to the Fermi energy. And I understood this very, very well in the day of my Viva, but I've now forgotten it. It's the sort of thing where anytime I've needed to understand it, I've been able to like prepare it in my short term memory uh, and then it goes away. And then um, close by the drinks happened and it left right. Yeah. Never to be seen again. Exactly. Uh, so anyway, there is this tipping point. It gets so hot basically that it stops being like a degenerate gas and starts being more like a regular ideal gas. And at that point, its equation of state does depend on temperature again. So suddenly you've got this really, really, really hot layer of gas. And it's like, oh, no, oh, God, I'm very hot. I have to be the volume that corresponds to this heat. <laughs> so it just expands really, really fast. Or it explodes, to use the colloquialism. So, so it basically explodes out into the interstellar medium. And that's a nova explosion. So all this stuff gets ejected off the surface of the star. Uh, and this doesn't really interfere with the binary in any way. It keeps on, the binary keeps on orbiting. It doesn't destroy the white dwarf. Like, as far as the binary system is concerned, things are pretty much business as usual, except for this big explosion, which has just happened. My PhD was specifically concerned with the stuff that gets ejected into the interstellar medium. Because for, for years, for, for a long, long time, people who studied Nobay, and, and these, these have been around for a while. I mean, when I was doing my lit review, I was reading up on them, and earliest records kind of... It's hard to say because for a while they kind of didn't know what they were looking at and then there were somewhere like retroactively they kind of thought, oh yeah, that was probably an opera. But some of the earliest references were from like the early 1900s. And in fact, I was very pleased to see so one of the references that I was chasing up. It was from like 1903 or something. And it was like Clark et al. 1903. It was a book actually by this Clark. And I was like, oh, who's this person? I discovered Clark was a woman, uh, Agnes Clark. Not only was she a woman, she was an Irish woman. Not only was she an Irish woman, she was from Cork, which is where I'm from. So yeah. I was like, oh, There we go. <laughs> so 110 uh, years later, life. here I am in Manchester. <laughs> so what was that, Josh? I was just thinking the circle of life. Um, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So anyway, but for a long time, I mean, when she was looking at them now, they really didn't know. Like, they didn't even know they were binary systems. They were looking at the spectra going, it's very strange. One bit of it seems to be coming towards us. 
the other bit seems to be going away. What could possibly be happening? And you know, um, and no one, no one saw that and went rotation. It took them a while. It just took a while. Okay. Um, well, I suppose it seems obvious to us now with yeah. the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. Okay. So, but anyway, for a long time, they said, okay, this stuff just gets ejected out, and in the way of scientists, they said, oh, and it's probably a sphere. It probably takes the form of a sphere, because sure, why wouldn't it? But, like, pretty much every single resolved image of these uh, shows an ejector, which is not spherical, like, at all. <laughs> and there's, like, a lot of other indications that the stuff that comes off them isn't spherical. And when you really think about it, why would it be? Because it's being ejected out. There's this binary system there, which has the potential to kind of transfer all kinds of uh, things into stuff. And I'll give you the technical term in a second. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's fine. I, I, I like the, the lay terms that we're getting here. So this is... Yeah. <laughs> This is what I was like in my life. It was terrible. But, but you passed. You are Dr. Fiona Healy. I yeah. know, exactly. It's because I never really worked in a group. I always worked alone. And I think it's like, you know, you know, babies, you know, if you don't talk to babies, they never develop a vocabulary. And they, they like, you know, it's hard for them to like learn English and have literacy because because they haven't been spoken to. And that, that's how babies learn. People speak to them. That's what I was like. Because I worked alone for most of my PhD, uh, I didn't, there was no group. It was just me. It's like, I know what I'm doing. I just don't have the words. Because <laughs> um, I wasn't really used to talking about it. But it was nice working alone, too. I kind of got to do my own thing. But anyway. A few um, of my undergraduate lecturers suddenly make more sense now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and no, really. You spend too long alone and you just forget how to speak English. Um, so, yeah. So, basically, the stuff that comes off, you know, but the ejected, the hot layer of gas that gets blown out in space. For a very long time now, people have been thinking, oh, it's not spherical. And we had some observations made with Emerlin. You guys all know. Some of you have been there. <laughs> of this Nova called V959MON or NovaMON 2012. The cashier. We had like I think six or seven observations. I presented six in my thesis because the seventh was kind of me. And <laughs> I mean, they were all a bit kind of me, to be honest. But, uh, there were varying <laughs> levels of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we had these six observations of this nova, like over the course of its evolution, which is a really cool thing to have. I mean, because of the nature of them, because they like erupt and then so in the optical they are really hard to observe like we miss a lot of them because they just flare up and then tail off quite quickly and the radio they develop over kind of longer time scales because there is thermal brunstrahlung so it's optically thick for a while but then as it expands I always think of it as a bit like blowing up a balloon you know when you blow up a balloon when you start blowing it up it's not see-through but then by the time you get to the end of it it's oh, see-through yeah. uh, okay. uh, just like that um, that's a fantastic analogy that I'm definitely going to steal yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it's helpful, isn't it? Yeah. yeah uh, that's how I always thought of it, because uh, that's pretty much exactly what happens is the, the code of, of ejecta expands. It just comes see-through because um, the, the more spread out it is. So, yeah, so basically that means in the radio, whereas in the optical, they just flare up and then tail off quite fast. In the radio, it's a more slow development, so they're a bit easier to observe. They're often kind of far away and kind of dim and a bit poorly resolved. This one was quite near, it's 1.5 kiloparsecs away. I think it reached a peak brightness of about 27 milligamskis in, in the C-band, which is 5 gigahertz. And and it was very well resolved. We were really lucky. It was uh, so that it had been observed by the VLA, which doesn't resolve as well because it doesn't have the long baselines. 
but Emarlin has these nice long bass lines, so we were able to what we were able to do what we thought was a pretty good job of resolving the structure, and we saw an injector that was definitely not a sphere. It was kind of so first it was a bit like a sphere at the earliest epoch. So epoch is the fancy astronomy word for time for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with that particular little piece of dragon. So first it was kind of roughly spherical shaped, but then as time progressed, it started becoming more and more sort of. I don't even want to say egg-shaped. It was sort of elongated in the east-west direction. It was sort of, um, there was kind of two little clumps. And it got more and more elongated in the east-west direction as time went on until then. So that was like the first four epochs that was doing that. But then for the last two, pretty much all the east-west stuff was gone. And in its place was a north-south elongation. So it completely switched its orientation. Like over the space of, let me see, we had one of February 2013, and then by October 2013, it had completely switched from being elongated in the east-west direction to being elongated in the north-south direction. So is that, is that so, from like an ejection or explosion, or was it just straight up shape change? Well, we didn't. We just didn't know. And so, I mean, that and that was, and we'll get to this later, that was assuming that we believed what we were seeing. But there was kind of evidence, other observations with other instruments and made in different ways kind of backed that up um, and in fact ours wasn't even the first indication that it went through this change in its shape that was kind of other the VLA observations kind of hinted at it too because otherwise you would just be like that's really weird you know you know why would it do that but but there was pretty solid evidence you know in addition to the Merlin observations to suggest that yeah that's, that's what it's doing so that was really weird and then before the e observations were even finished. Like I said, they'd been kind of noticing similar stuff with the VLA. So this, this crowd over at the VLA, in particular this lady called Laura Chamiak, who I'd love to meet. So I spent my whole PhD reading her paper and, you know, probing her hypothesis and thinking an awful lot about some of the things that she said. Um, and, I, and I've never once met her. Uh, Laura, if you're listening, then get in touch. <laughs> yeah, Laura, if you're listening, right you've got <laughs> What she said might be happening, so remember I said there's a binary system. Um, she said that the binary system could be interacting with the ejecta. So basically, if you think of the orbital plane of the binary as being a bit like a food processor, <laughs> so it's going around, the binary system is going around and around and around. And you know in a food processor, it kind of sweeps things up into sort of a torus shape. She said that's possibly what's going on in the orbital plane. So you get this kind of toroidal component forming in the orbital plane because of interaction with the orbiting binary. And so that would be quite thick and dense and comparatively slow moving. So the whole time stuff is getting blown off the surface of the white dwarf. Some of it is essentially getting kind of caught up in the orbital plane of the binary. And so that slow moving dense bit in the orbital plane impedes the stuff that's coming off the surface. So what you would see initially is the fast moving stuff coming off the surface which is freer to move out along the poles. So basically where there's no slow, dense stuff, this fast-moving stuff can propagate outwards at a great speed, um, and that would be kind of, yeah, along the polar axis of the white dwarf. That's what you see first, uh, and it would be kind of asterical, obviously, and then that would fade away um, because, well, it would become octocletin, so it would, like the balloon, it would disappear. And then what would remain is the slower stuff that got swept up in the orbital plane. That would basically still be optically thick at that point because it's slower moving. And so once so, so once the faster component fades away, you'd see the slower component. And 
whether or not the kind of mechanics of that are spot on or not, I don't know. But basically, it does kind of make sense that if you had two components moving at different speeds, that would cause the shift from being elongated in one direction to being elongated in the other. This is so much easier. This is very hard to explain on the radio because you really need to draw diagrams. Yeah, no, I, I, I can appreciate that. Um, the mimes, the mimes are helping us, but yeah, yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame that those won't be visible um, to the listeners. But, well, but you we'll know, we've been asking art on the on the. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Perhaps we should invest in a Fiona Show whiteboard. Yes. You know what? You should have is some Fiona Show emojis. Uh, and you could have one of me like going like this, and another of me going like this. Well, <laughs> some little, yeah, some little bit moji of you. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, all of that is kind of getting very bogged down in detail. But basically, suffice it to say, instead of being a sphere, it is hot. That perhaps the injector has two components: one is slow and one is fast. You see the fast one first, then it becomes optically thin, and you see the slow one. And so that is how you could have those kinds of changes that that dramatic change in the orientation of the ejector. So basically, I spend a lot of time staring at those pictures and thinking about that and making various little measurements and estimations of their expansion velocity and fitting models to the light curve. But then we were a bit worried because we were like, A, is it even possible for that kind of mechanic of a slow component and a fast component to produce that kind of would that lead to what we saw with E. Merlin? Would a slow component and a fast component give rise to the kind of ejector that we saw with E. Merlin was the first question that we wanted to look into. And secondly, uh, we were a little concerned because E. Merlin has, um, depending on the kind of source you're observing, its UV coverage isn't always complete. And now I'm definitely not going to get into this with a whiteboard. That's fine. <laughs> but basically... A radio telescope doesn't ever really get a complete picture of the sky. It kind of traces out lines, and you've got to fit a picture to those. You get the bits that you can actually see, and you've got to, in a very simplified way, you've got to say, right, what fits that? You, you know, you, you have to kind of, to an extent, replicate what's in those gaps that you can't it's, see. It's sort of dot to dot, isn't it? Or it is a bit like join the dots, except with Fourier transforms. Yeah. Uh, that's so, less fun. Inverted Fourier transform dot to dot. That's fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I so, grew up on those. It's <laughs> they were my staple train puzzle. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, like all children. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, if you're sitting there thinking to yourselves, oh, God, those scientists, they're just making things up. That's not quite true. We make a very educated guess. And there's kind of ways of knowing if that guess is wrong. And especially radio astronomy, it's it's a funny one. It's like you almost have to like you have to start learning how to do it when you're quite young. I always think and just develop that sort of instinct around it. So you know, there comes a point where you can be like, ah, I don't think that bit's real, and but yes, this is real, and you know, you just it's a delicate art. Um, Having done a course in radio astronomy, I completely appreciate that because I don't yeah. understand it at all. Instrumentary yeah. is just a dark art, as far as I'm concerned. I mean. Yeah, I recall, what was it Colin said? He was at a conference once and he was sitting behind two kind of older scientists and um, they were looking at some images and one said to the other, you know, do you believe these? And the other said, yeah, you know, I do. And, and uh, the first one said, oh, do you really believe them though? And the second one said, well, I wouldn't be too comfortable if there were an MRI scan of my brain. <laughs> 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 you know, it's like, yeah, we believe them because... 
the stakes aren't too high if they're actually wrong. But, you know, it probably for the best that say for things like medical imaging, they have more refined techniques. But uh, but yeah, so all of which is to say we don't make things up uh, at all, but it is a bit of a subtle science figuring out um, what is in those, those bits that you can't see. So anyway, we'd seen this weird ejecta, but we were like, are we really sure that's actually what's there? Could it not be a sphere that's just been a bit distorted because we haven't seen the whole thing? And you can kind of like you can imagine that this isn't quite how it works because of the Fourier transforms, which but um, which would make everything a bit more complicated. But basically, you can imagine if you were kind of looking at something spherical, but you could only see like through a little slit, you'd think it was quite a different shape. It's a bit like that. So we were we had a concern that maybe the, the observations we made with Imran could have been the result of just distortion of a perfectly normal spherical shell of ejecta. So those are the two options. Either there's kind of a very complex, you know, two components thing causing this switch in elongation, or it's just a regular old sphere that's expanding out and appearing to be different wobbly shapes um, as it expands through this kind of patchy UV coverage. So to check which of those two things, if either was the case, I did a whole bunch of simulations, which are still weighing my computer down. <laughs> are they still going, then? Uh, they're not still going, thanks be to God, but um, all the data they've spit out is still sitting on here. I have a tiny amount of space left on my hard drive. So I made up a pretend Nova with some pretend ejecta and simulated what that would look like at radio frequencies. and then. Now, and I didn't write all these scripts myself, so Tim wrote the script, Tim, my supervisor, Tim O'Brien, you guys know, um, the listeners don't know. Yeah. <laughs> he had a code that would simulate the radio emission, and then there's this other code, which Adam Avison has adopted from the ALMA observation support tool, and you guys know Adam. Adam's written this, well, adapted this, um, done a really neat job of adapting. That sounds so condescending. I mean, well Adam. Done, Adam. <laughs> Good job, Adam. <laughs> No, Adam has this amazing um, eMerlin observation support tool, which he adapted from the ALMA observation support tool, which basically it looks at your simulated ejecta and simulates what that would look like to eMerlin. So basically what I was able to do is explore the two possibilities that we were considering. Either it's a sphere or it's two components. I made those ejectors and fed them into the Merlin observation support tool and looked at the results. And I had to do that a load of different times, especially for the two components, because we were like, we don't know how fast they are. We don't know what the ratio of their masses is. I had to, I had this big parameter space. So I, I did a load of simulations and kind of studied all the output of all of those to find ones which I thought kind of matched up well enough. I was basically looking for something which was, you had two components and I wanted one to be bright at the start and then the other to be bright at the end because that would be one dominating at the start and the other dominating at the end. So that took a very long time. And um, then when that was done, I came to the conclusion that the two-component model could have caused something a bit like what we saw, kind of not bright enough, so it's a plausible model for sure, but there's something going on there that we haven't taken into account, uh, which is the entirely logical conclusion because it's a pretty simplistic model. The spherical one, unfortunately, when I did when I ran the spherical model, it replicated eerily well the north-south elongation that we saw. Oh dear. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but it didn't replicate the east-west stuff at all. So basically, neither of them explain what we saw, but 
the two component model is probably a bit closer than the spherical model. And that was my very sort of gentle conclusion. Huh. Sounds like there's another PhD project in that. Yeah, do you want to come back and do that? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, I would love to. No. <laughs> I'm done with this now. Uh, I'm sorry, that must have been a bit boring um, for you guys and for all our listeners. Uh, you feel free to cut it as much as you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, something that I actually wanted to ask you was when we're interviewing people, we're always interviewing people who are still within the science world. Mm-hmm. They're active mm-hmm. academics. Yeah, they're still part of the community. And obviously, you are welcome to come and visit the community. But what I kind of wanted to ask was, why did you leave? Why have you left as Fiona? I mean, there were a bunch of reasons. I suppose I felt ready for a bit of a change of pace. You know, I feel like I've been a student for nearly 10 years. I've been a radio astronomer for, goodness, technically maybe seven, six or seven years. I've been in that kind of academic bubble uh, all my adult life. I wanted to try something different. I wanted to work on a team. That's always something that I get. That's something I got to do when I worked in the broadcast, and uh, and I liked it. So I thought, yeah, I like so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, so so that was part of it. Just really a change. I just thought, you know, you know, academia is very competitive. It's not easy, especially if you're in a relationship. So my boyfriend and I were both radio astronomers. Neither of us are now. So he did a postdoc while I was doing my PhD. It's very, very hard. Very hard, especially if there's two of you. Uh, but even if there's only one of you, you know, especially in your early career, you move around a lot. There's no job stability. The pay is not so good. You're expected to kind of just do it for the love of it. But I love shopping and modern art and Prosecco. <laughs> Um, <laughs> my job is kind of just what I do during the day um, and it's always been that way for me I'm, I'm not vocational so yeah no I just thought you know mm, not for me and so I went into the civil service because it's quite the opposite of that it's known for its well that's not why I went into the civil service but it is a part you know it's um, a much different kind of environment to academia um, although, and I'm not sure if this is the case in the UK, in, in Ireland, academics, postdocs, um, you know, lecturers are technically civil servants. So, but I don't think that's the case in the UK, is it? I've never heard of anything like that. No. Yeah, yeah, no, in Ireland, they're on the civil service conveyor belt. That's how their salary works. Um, maybe not all of them, but certainly, certainly lots of them. This is all very vague and rambly, but yeah, basically I just wanted to change and I wanted to kind of feel useful, which isn't to say that doing research isn't useful because it absolutely is. I wouldn't even say I didn't feel like I was particularly useful at it, because <laughs> I was. <laughs> I mean, you passed, so yeah, you must exactly, have been. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I guess, yeah, no, um, just a change of pace. And yeah, myself and my boyfriend can live in the same place now, because we've both left academia, so we're free, free to choose where, where we go. <laughs> um, so that was a big part of it. Yeah, and I'm excited to be where I am now. You know, I've uh, I've only been... In my new job a week, um, <laughs> I'm a bit tired, <laughs> and I'm still very much feeling my way. And I'm getting to use a lot of my skills. So that's the other thing I'll say is that you know when you do a PhD, it really trains you for a lot of unexpected things, and it gives you a lot of transferable skills that, that I think PhD students don't always realize they have. We're not taught to think that way. We're not taught to think about what we're doing in you know 
in any other way except with respect to research outcomes sometimes. I mean, and that doesn't come, that never came from Tim or any person who supervised me or, you know, that I interacted with, but it just is kind of the way the field works. You know, you publish papers and you get results and the slog you have to go through to get to those things. So, it, you know, it teaches you really valuable things, but isn't always valued, even though, you know, next time you have to solve a similar problem, it's never as hard because of all the things you learned when you were solving the previous problem. And, you know, even things like public speaking, um, you know, and attending conferences, being good at that, or what does that even mean, being good at it? But having experience at it, having put yourself in that situation and having done it is a really useful thing to have done that lots of people don't get the opportunity to do. Um, so it's basically what I'm saying is having a PhD is really useful. And I'm finding now that I'm in this situation where I really feel I can apply some of the skills that even though I'm not doing any astronomy, I feel like I'm definitely using what I've learned uh, in Manchester. So that's nice. And I'm learning lots of new stuff too, though. Lots of acronyms. It's all about the acronyms in civil service, even more so than astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty notorious for acronyms. Yeah. Are, they, oh, no, are those guys, contrived? These kinds? Are those contrived? No, no. I mean, these guys are just out of control. Like, sometimes you'll, you'll have a conversation where it's like a good 30% of it is acronyms. So, yeah. Okay. Does okay. that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic answer. Jake, have you got anything... Ah, uh, well, I suppose the one big area that we haven't covered yet is your involvement with the Jodcast over the years, and yeah. of course, the genesis of this, the Fiona Show. The Fiona Show, well, yeah, I guess, um, you know, I was inspired to have the Fiona Show by the tremendous fun that I had on the Jodcast. I thought, you know, every time I was doing an episode, I was like, you know what, it would be great if this was actually just the Fiona Show. <laughs> I'm sure the presenters and the listeners all agreed with me. <laughs> because <laughs> um, I love presenting so much um, it was a lot of fun yeah yeah no I remember like there would be times when you know I would um, typically if it was early on in the day and I'd have a lot of energy and I'd be like yeah presenting great and I'd go into it you know going home and then there'd be times where I'd be like oh no I'm too tired and I hate my thesis I hate my life and, but then I would do the presenting and it would like cheer me up so much why so I never want to stop presenting which is why the Fiona show was born Excellent. Um, so have you got any particular favourite memories from working on the broadcast? So a broadcastable favourite memory, uh, my, one of my favourite memories is very possibly the time I interviewed Jocelyn Bell now. That was, well, favourite slash most exciting slash most terrifying. That, that was scary. She's a formidable woman. She kind of reminded me of my secondary school physics teacher. I had this feeling throughout the whole interview that I hadn't done my homework and I was really scared and I was hoping she wouldn't find out. But, uh, but no, it was, um, it was really nice to meet her and talk to her. And I liked the live show. That was fun. Um, were you guys there for the live show? No, that was before our time, unfortunately. Oh, the well, live we, show. We're going to do another one. Oh, I see, think. this is good. This is why so, it's good that we've got like a constant rollover. It's why it's good we've got a constant rollover of presenters and producers because you guys don't remember what it was like to organize. So, yeah, I know it was loads of fun to organize. And you I, should totally... I just had a really panicked look off Jake when I mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, the live show was brilliant. Jocelyn Belvernell was brilliant. God, it's just, um, I remember my first job test and it was Christina Smith, uh, whose birthday it is today, actually. Happy birthday, Christina, if you're listening, although it won't be her birthday at the time of airing, but it is her birthday at the time of recording. Happy birthday <laughs> to Christina and yeah. also to anyone that is listening at this time of recording <laughs> from that point listening. in the past. Yeah, but it was Christina Smith who wrote me into the Jodcast. I remember she came into, um, she, she was doing her PhD and she was in the same office as me and she came in and she said, we're 1% short with the Jodcast, we need someone to come and do it. And I said, okay, I'll do it. 
And there I was with my odd and end all written out on a piece of paper with paragraphs and everything. <laughs> I'm slowly edging away from the uh, from that level of preparation. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no, I tailed off very fast. And I mean, like, even the days when I used to come in with it written on my arm, like towards the end, I would, would not even write anything down at all and just talk about some random thoughts I had about an Irish Technica article I read that day. <laughs> um, so uh, you guys will get there. It's a good place. Oh, yeah. uh, well, no, Adam is still three or four months on. How's it go at me, primarily, for the odd, <laughs> for your odd and end that descended into me sketching? So what I feel like oh, yeah, we should have yeah. done, you know what we should have done is we should have just opened it up as a listener competition. We should have just described it and said, guys, send your, send your picture then. Yeah, see, this is the thing. Adam completely cut the segment. Like, that, yeah. that, whole, that whole, the whole bit went, which was that was some quality radio. Some quality ah. radio that I'm sure will make it into some sort of blooper reel at the point. Uh, yeah. I've, well, I've still got the raw audio stored locally on this machine that we're doing the recording <laughs> on. It is phenomenal. You can add it to the long list of my bloopers. Um, there's, there's many of them. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, I, I, I really just... I used to like, I used to quite like, um, so I mean, before, so we used to have more rigid kind of structure before, obviously, where you would have like a lead presenter and two kind of, you know, million presenters. Yeah. <laughs> well, normally that structure is still there, but it is pretty flexible. Yeah, yeah, no, it's changed a lot over the time that, that I've been on it. And uh, a shout out to Hannah Stacey, she's listening. She and I recorded some good podcasts together. Great. Uh, including one where um, we had one comment from a listener saying, good show, shame about the women giggling throughout. <laughs> well, that commenter is in for a rough show. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it um, did not take the wind out of myself in the least, <laughs> as you can see. <laughs> it you more. Yeah, yeah, no, really. <laughs> um, I mean, no, I was a reformed character. I never giggled again. <laughs> I've run out of planned questions, so uh, like, do, do you have any, have you got any ideas of where the Fiona show or the Jodcast should go uh, Good question. in the future? Have you, have you got anything that you always wanted to see happen that never got realised that we can now take and run? Mm, well, oh, I can tell you the next thing that's probably going to happen in the Fiona show is a gin and tonic. But on the Jodcast, <laughs> but on the Jodcast, huh, what would I like to see happen? That's a really good question, because I feel like over the years there have been things I've wanted to do. I mean, I guess I always, what I always wanted to do on the Jodcast, and what I always kind of tried to do was, I know people listen, up, you know, for the science, and to hear about science, which is great, but I always wanted to perpetuate the idea that scientists, are humans, scientists are people. Um, I think there can be this really, you know, it's a nice idea, but a, a, a bit of a romanticized idea, I think, of what, what a scientist is and what, what they do every day. And I always, in my appearances on the Jodcast, try to kind of, I guess, just send home the idea that, you know, we're, we're people and we have human thoughts and, and emotions and feelings. And, you know, sometimes doing research is hard, not because the research is hard, but because being a human is hard. So I guess what I love about the Jodcast and what I hope um, will keep happening is that it's a show about science, but, you know, given by, you know, real human scientists and, and that, that human element is a real part of it. Um, so I think that's really important. 
I mean, not, not just because, you know, we're people who and scientists have feelings and blah, blah, blah. But because actually science itself can never be free from the fact that humans are doing it. And I think there's a real tendency to kind of ignore that or try and stamp it out or try and think, no, but science is impartial or science is, you know, almost divine. It's not. Science is done by humans and is both limited and inspired by that. The human element of science, I think, is more important than people give it credit for. And that should be a thing that people hear when they listen to the podcast, that scientists are humans. So, yeah, that's uh, sorry. The, every single answer I've given you has been those kind of rambling streams of consciousness. <laughs> I mean, rambling streams of consciousness that are worth listening to. Okay, well, I'm just... Agreed. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I need my gin tonic. It's been, it's been a long day. <laughs> okay, on that note then, should we perhaps wrap up? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it was really, really nice talking to you guys, and I miss you, and and I hope that uh, that you know the jobcast continues to go from strength to strength. And I wish I could be there still sometimes. Well, we'll, we'll keep in touch, and hmm. maybe, yeah. maybe you will actually be able to be back in this studio at one point. Yeah, I love are, that. You are I welcome back that. once you've had your GNT. <laughs> yeah. <Main priority>. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'll be around for my graduation. Maybe you guys can um get an interview with me in my funny hat and my big cream egg robes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that can yeah. work. Right. Yeah. So, well, anyway. Yes, Fiona, thank you very much for your mm. time. And now, I've always wanted to say this, and now back to you in the studio. Thanks for that, Fiona and Fiona. Now, we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. Uh, so my odds and ends for this month is in response to some of the headlines that I've seen in Space News recently, um, boldly proclaiming, astronauts' DNA changed by space. So this is referring to astronaut Fiona Healy, also known as Scott Kelly, who has been on four space flights and commanded the International Space Station on expeditions 26, 45 and 46. In total, he spent a whopping 520 days in space, with his longest trip being a 340-day stint, which is the longest ever for the International Space Station. Uh, so this was done between 2015 and 2016. And the point of this long trip was to study the longer-term effects of space on the human body. Astronauts commonly report diminished eyesight um, that doesn't return to normal on their way home. Um, their bones can become more brittle in the microgravity of space, and their muscles can also start to degrade as well. Um, so they, they see a lot of physical degradations um, on return to Earth. And Scott offers a unique insight into this uh, effect of space on the body um, because his twin brother also happens to be an astronaut. Uh, so his twin brother, Mark, um, has been in space for, well, only a measly 54 days. But this discrepancy in terms of how long they have been in space for offers an interesting insight into the differences between the bodies of the two twins. There are 10 research projects in what NASA's calling the twin study. Um, and so this is a whole range of tests, you know, looking at cognitive abilities of the twins to um, assessing uh, changes in the metabolisms, but also how their genes are expressed. And this is what leads into some of the misleading headlines. So in the original press release from NASA, they said, researchers now know that 93% of Scott's genes return to normal after landing. However, the remaining 7% point to possible longer-term changes in genes related to his immune system, DNA repair, bone formation networks, hypoxia, and hypercapnia. Uh, so hypercapnia is excess carbon dioxide in the bloodstream. 
Um, so a few people got the wrong end of the stick with this, and many places reported that uh, just 7% of his DNA just outright changed. So to put this into context, if 7% of your DNA changes, you are no longer human. So we share, well, I think, 99.8% of our DNA with uh, chimpanzees, for example. Um, going down to a 93% similarity, you are um, looking at our most distant kind of monkey cousins. Um, so, and, and Scott Kelly is, is not a monkey. Um, it's uh, quite obvious to see. So what actually has changed is the way that this DNA um, has been expressed. So every cell in your body, no matter what it does, um, contains all of the approximately 20,000 genes that make up your whole DNA. Um, but you get different cells with different functions. So what matters is which of these genes are expressed in each different cell. So you can turn these genes on and off. And what NASA actually reported was changes in the expression for some of Scott Kelly's genes. So uh, the ones that relate to his immune system, the repair of DNA, networks related to bone formation um, and hypoxia and you know, this excess carbon dioxide in the, in the bloodstream, um, which is obviously notable. Um, but the same thing can happen if you put the body in kind of any stressful condition, for example, if you're uh, a mountain climber, for example. Um, so these, these reports are still in their early days as well, um, so the, the main results of this study aren't due out until a bit later on. So it's not that they're necessarily permanently, permanently changed or permanently affected, it's, it's just that these are taking longer to perhaps return to what they were before we went into space? Uh, possibly, yes. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned, you know, the, these gene expressions are, are, are more fluid than, than our DNA itself, so they, they can change uh, relating to the situation that, that our bodies are put in. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I think this also highlights as well, um, with any scientific reporting, I think you need to uh, read between the lines a little bit in terms of what, what something is actually saying, and is, is the science behind it actually what the headline is trying to tell you? Have you seen any wild misspeculation in the news about it at all then, or...? Oh, I mean, uh, the, the main thing... Probably more in the past, but... I mean, I mean the main thing is that, um, you know, his DNA has been changed by space, mm. which is, yeah, not, not the right way of, of going about it. And um, it's funny because this press release was released on the 31st of January, but it was only actually towards the end of March that a lot of the media started picking it up. I assume, you know, one source might have seen the, the press release out, oh, this is a bit old, but it might make an interesting story. And then from there, many, many people have started talking about it. So in a way, it's good because it's you know, getting people interested in space exploration and, um, you know, can, can engage people a bit with it. But uh, yes, always important to, to clarify the facts regarding it. How um, unexpected or completely expected are the results that NASA found or so far from the study? There have been studies done into gene expression and changes in gene expression in uh, space before. So, for example, um, one of the experiments on the International Space Station was to look at the effects of uh, a spaceflight environment on kind of microbial pathogens and specifically the, their ability to infect humans. And so these studies actually found that changes in gene expressions in microbes, for example, can increase how well they can infect humans. So obviously this has great uh, ramifications for potential long-term space travel, so you know, potentially travelling to Mars or, or even beyond. Uh, so it's not just the DNA changes in uh, the, the, the gene expression changes in humans that can be an issue. It's also, we've, we've seen that in microbes before as well. So this could be a bit of a naive question because I don't really know much about biology, but all I know about genes is, you know, you pass them on to your children. Um, 
would this happen in this case? Would their children have any different DNA? So this is a whole field of um, of research called epigenetic. You know, the, the um, do these gene expressions get passed on uh, to offspring? And well, like I said, there's a whole field of research which I do not feel at all qualified to comment on. Um, I know it's a thing. I don't know much about it. So if any of our listeners know anything about uh, epigenetics and want to speculate on its impact on you know potential long-term human space travel, then you know, please please get in touch. Uh, that would be a welcome discussion, I think, for us to have. So obviously this. Uh, effect of space on the human body um, is a potential concern for human exploration of space, um, but obviously has no impact on a robot in space. So obviously this could have ramifications for the future of human space travel, but one thing that doesn't need to worry about effects of space on its DNA is a little rover on Mars. Um, So I'm going to hand over to Fiona for their odd and end. on March the 22nd, 2018, NASA's Curiosity rover celebrated its 2,000th Martian day on Mars. So that's 2,000 souls. And one soul is approximately one Earth day plus 30 minutes or so. Uh, so Curiosity launched in, or rather landed on Mars in August 2012. And it actually had a working life, or the, its primary mission was supposed to last only 668 souls. So 687 days. So it's actually been going for about three times longer than it should have done. And in that time, it's travelled 18.7 kilometres across the uh, uh, Gale Crater. And since September 2014, it's been climbing Mount Sharp. Um, Some interesting things it's found during that time is in 2013, it found it was investigating in, uh, well, the Gale Crater, an ancient freshwater lake. And the Curiosity Science team now believes that habitable conditions exist on Mars for millions of years. That's really cool. It's a cute little robot just going about its business. So this reminds me of the Spirit and Opportunity rovers, which were, oh, when did they get onto Mars? I think about 2014. So I think their duration um, of their mission was meant to be about 90 sol. So again, about uh, just over 90 Earth days. And, well, Spirit lasted until 2009 and um, when it got stuck. And it ceased communications in 2010. But as far as I know, Opportunity is still going. So it's exceeded its operating plan by nearly 14 years, which is absolutely incredible. So hopefully Curiosity is going to do that as well. And we should hopefully have many more scientific things to come from it. Yeah, they're largely robotic. So you just sort of give them instructions and they carry them out until you tell them to stop. So really, they'll just carry on doing science. I mean, Curiosity's nuclear powered. It's got a thermo, um, thermoelectric generator powered by a uh, radioisotope. Uh, so it, it can last for, well, in principle, hundreds if not thousands of years, its power supply. Oh, wow. I'm assuming that other components might degrade before then. Uh, yes, probably. Yes. So uh, in, uh, in 2013, February, the end of February 2013, uh, the computer's memory sort of broke slightly. So it uh, basically went into a boot loop. So it turned off, kept turning back on again. So it, it, they turned it off in uh, safe mode. It, sorry, they rebooted it in safe mode and it came back online in March. So things do go wrong, but in general they're fixable. I think it'll only take a really sort of a, a physical physical issue to stop curiosity. That sounds absolutely terrifying, having a computer going wrong when it's on a different planet and you have to sort that out. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that reminds me of, you know, the, the Hubble Space Telescope, and obviously that, that initially mm. went quite wrong, and, you know, they had to send astronauts up there to fix it. Mars is a little bit further away. Yes. So, yes, yeah, so, so Mars is just a little bit further away than the uh, Hubble Space Telescope, so human intervention is sort of out of the question. But speaking about Mars, um, Fiona, how else has been Mars been in the news recently? <laughs> um, Mars has indeed been in the news recently. Um, so there's something called the Astronomer's Telegram, uh, which is a good way of, if you see something, especially a transient or whatever, you, you want to immer- immediately tell people. And um, so that exists, so if you find something interesting in the sky then you can immediately tell people as quickly as you can, get the information out there. Um, and that could be very good if you have, say, a supernova, we're overdue for one of them by, uh, what is it, 400 years in the Milky Way? It's uh, meant to have one every 50 to 100 years. So so something like that means this could be quite a useful tool. Um, but unfortunately, it turned out to be quite an accidentally embarrassing tool recently. Um, so I want to do this very respectfully because I think it's just a complete, Unlucky accident, the sort that, well, in an astro- astronomers do all the time, really, or at least personally speaking. Um, and um, so someone posted on this on the Telegram um, of a very bright optical transients near the Triffid and Lagoon Nebulae. And yeah, it was an astonishing discovery for him. I'm sure he thought it incredible at the time. Um, the, astro- the optical transient is the brightest star in the field. Further observations are strongly encouraged to establish the nature of this very bright optical transient. Um, unfortunately, then half an hour later, he had to post and say, um, I'll find the exact wording here. Um, the object reported in the telegram has been identified as Mars. Uh, our sincere apologies for the early report and the inconvenience caused. <laughs> See, I would not want to be that astronomer. <laughs> exactly, and it's such an easy mistake in a way. Um, he wasn't even a, he's a cosmologist. He wasn't actually not working in the field of transients or anything where this will come up much at all. Um, he's working on his own astrophotography hobby at home and was incredibly unlucky that his own profession as a cosmologist and as an astronomer meant that he was able to use this and quickly post it out to everyone. So, so what was it that he compared his observations to that made him think that he'd observed transient? Uh, so in the initial telegram he says that um, there is no obvious counterpart to this position in the um, digital sky survey plates. So suppose the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Um, and that sort of shows how he could make this sort of mistake because uh, as a cosmologist, I suppose, he's thinking of a far different thing to um, what a lot of people might haphazardly think if they read this on the news. They might think, of course, Mars is right next to us. How can you forget that? But you don't necessarily think of these things um, immediately if that's not your field of research. Yeah, and actually there are, I'd say, a lot of astronomers and astrophysics don't actually have maybe as as good a working knowledge of the sky as, as <clears throat> some people might expect them to. Uh, I mean, a lot of um, researchers may be very theoretical. They might just work in maths all day. Obviously, an important part of astrophysics is explaining the theory behind observations. Um, so they, they do play a crucial role in research. But they may never actually look through a telescope themselves, which I think is a bit of a shame. So I actually was an astronomer before I was an astrophysicist. Um, actually, now that I am an astrophysicist, I don't get to do astronomy as much as I would like to. Um, for me, astronomy is the art of you know, looking through a telescope yourself and just observing what is there. And you know, astrophysics is the more scientific process um, behind that, relating to it. But um, yeah, I think we should definitely maybe force some of the... Um, astrophysicists, especially the theorists, the cosmologists in the department, to 
uh, look through a telescope, maybe. Mm, yeah. Reminds me of a uh, third-year lab experiment we did where me and my lab partner were looking at radio data and we discovered the sun. So <laughs> that was fun. Mm. Uh, yeah, for me, I did my master's on the Orion Nebula, so it's uh, very easy to see in the night sky. But um, I was quite deep into it, really, before I thought... Um, where is it? <laughs> I, I did the and same again. Again, I, I did some research on on one particular galaxy, um, M seventy four or NGC six two eight, and it, it was for the longest time before I actually thought, can I actually see this from the northern hemisphere? Mm. Um, can, <laughs> oh yes, I've, I've been observing it with the VLA. Yes, that's um, that that's in the northern hemisphere. I should be able to see it from from the UK. I should probably check that. Uh, it turns out it's um, I think the, one of the faintest messier objects, so it's quite hard to see. But at least. You can see it, and uh, I did. I did try and look for it. I don't think I ever found it myself. But uh, here's the thing, though: when when you are observing and getting observations yourself as an astrophysicist, you don't even necessarily need to be at the telescope yourself. A lot mm. of the time now, for a lot of observ- observatories, you you have dedicated astronomers at each observatory to observe for you. So you so you don't even have to know how to observe yourself. Yeah. But yeah. So I I feel like it's it's. A mistake that probably all of us have made at some point, something along those lines of it's it's very blatantly Mars, but you know some sometimes mm. obvious things like that can pass you by. I'm sure we've all done it in our work, um, but I think then going as far as posting it on the Astronomer's Telegram, um, it's just very unfortunate. Isn't very it? unfortunate. Yes, there's yes. Um, mistakes where everyone makes so many silly errors and things like that, or doesn't realise things till a bit later than they should do. Um, I certainly do, and everyone does, but um, if most of the time you probably notice it yourself, you know, some point later, an hour later. Sometimes it might stay up you for a bit, and you're talking to a friend, and you say, I can't get this to work, and they'll just look at it and say, what? No, no, this is so yeah. so apparent. Um, and then maybe you know, if you're unlucky, you'll go on Twitter about it immediately, <laughs> or make something public, and that, that's very unfortunate. So obviously this was quite an unfortunate incident. Um, ha- has the astronomer in question uh, addressed this in any way? Uh, yes, thankfully. He, he's um, taken it incredibly well. I have a great amount of respect for him. Um, this is uh, Peter Dunsby. He, um, the Astronomer's Telegram Twitter account actually sent him an award for the discovery of Mars, a fake certificate as a joke. Um, <laughs> and he thanked them for it. Um, and he said he's, in the grand scheme of things, it's not worth much, and it's glad he's brought a smile to some people. And uh, one interesting thing I saw on Twitter, someone, a very... Um, generous sort of person here because it's the right thing to do uh, tweeted them and said you know how mean you this is what encourages people to not make mistakes what would my child think if they saw this wouldn't want to take risks they wouldn't want to put themselves out there that's a bad precedent to set um but peter um replied saying it's fine honest mistakes happen and most never get reported uh, tell your child to be bold and not to care what other people think um so yeah uh, been incredibly great about the whole thing and that's i think a really good message to send out as well exactly very very well put basically um yeah (laughs) oh brilliant so clearly mars is visible in the night sky at the moment um but (laughs) what else can we see um so here now here's fiona healy with this month's night sky the night sky for april 2018 well as twilight ends the two bright stars, Castor and Pollux, of Gemini, the heavenly twins, will be setting over to the west. It's not a particularly bright area to the south, but centre stage is Leo the lion, squatting on his haunches, 
as the lions in Trafalgar Square. But between Germany and Leo, if you look with binoculars, very faint part of the sky is the constellation of Cancer, and in there there's a very nice wide open cluster, the Beehive Cluster. That's quite nice to look at. Moving further over towards the southeast, there's a bright, slightly orange star, Arcturus, at the base of the constellation of Bootes. And high above is the Plough, part of the constellation of Ursa Major. Its two brightest stars, Merak and Dupe, act as pointers towards Polaris, the pole star, quite close to the North Celestial Pole. Lots of nice objects, actually, to look at that. Quite a few in the Messier catalogue. And then finally, as the evening draws on, you begin to see in the northeast the bright star Vega in Lyra beginning to rise above the horizon. And that starts, really, the visibility of the summer constellations. It's a lovely area with Lyra, Cygnus and Aquarius. So that's to come. So still quite a nice little lot to have a look at. Oh, I should just mention over to the left of Arcturus, little circuit of stars, which is Corona Borealis, the northern crown. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter rises in the east-southeast about three hours after sunset at the beginning of the month and about two hours by month's end. Initially, it has a 42.6 arc-second disk, shining at magnitude minus 2.4. But as you might expect, as the month progresses, its apparent diameter increases to 44.6 arc-seconds and it brightens to magnitude minus 2.5. It will transit around 3.30 BST in early April and about 1.30 BST by its end. So that's now beginning to be possible to stay up for to observe it as it's due south and then highest in the sky. And you will, of course, see the equatorial bands with the small telescopes. Sometimes the great, but I should say reducing in size, red spot, and up to four of its Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. It's actually going to reach opposition when it's due south around midnight on May the 8th, 9th. Sadly, lying in Libra during the month, Jupiter is heading towards the southern part of the ecliptic and will only have an elevation of 20 degrees from the middle of the UK when crossing the meridian. So atmospheric dispersion will hinder our view and it might be worth considering purchasing an atmospheric dispersion corrector. Several are made, one by the firm ZWO, costing a little bit over £100. And that can be used to counteract the effects of the atmospheric dispersion. And to be honest, all the planets seen this month are low above the horizon. It will be useful for both Saturn and Mars as well. Well, Saturn is now well into its new apparition. It rises about 2.15am at the start of the month, just about 1am at its end. With an angular size of 16.7 arc seconds, increasing to 17.5 during the month, it climbs higher before dawn, and so becomes easier to spot as the month progresses. Its brightness increases from plus 0.5 to plus 0.4 magnitudes during the month. 
Now, the rings were at their widest a few months ago, but still at about 26 degrees to the line of sight, are well open and span about two and a half times the size of Saturn's globe. It's a lovely sight. Again, Saturn lying in Sagittarius is close to the topmost star of the teapot. And even while at opposition later in the year, it will only reach an elevation of about 15 degrees above the horizon as it crosses the meridian. So again, atmospheric dispersion will hinder our view. Now Mercury, it passes in front of the Sun, and that's called inferior conjunction, on April the 1st. And rising out of the Sun's glare reaches what is called greatest western elongation, which is 27 degrees away from the Sun, at the very end of the month. But due to the fact that the ecliptic makes a very shallow angle to the horizon at this time of year, it never gets more than about 10 degrees above the horizon, even when it's furthest in angle from the sun. So frankly, it's not one of its better apparitions. Now Mars starts the month in Sagittarius, close to the topmost star in the teapot, and hence close to Saturn. Now a morning object, it rises about 2 a.m., BST at the start of the month. Its magnitude increases from plus 0.3 to minus 0.3, so it's getting brighter. And its angular size increases from 8.4 to 11 arc seconds. So by the end of the month, it should be possible to spot some of the more prominent features on its salmon pink surface. But sadly again, it will only reach an elevation of 12 degrees before dawn at the start of the month, and about 11 by month's end. Sadly, again, the atmosphere will hinder our view. So it's about time to go to the Southern Hemisphere. The easiest place to go to is, is South Africa. You don't really suffer from jet lag. I've been up at Sutherland in the Karoo, the Northern Cape, where they have their giant salt telescope. And I have to say, the stars I saw in the sky there were the best I've seen in the whole of my life. I shall never forget the night I had. I never went to sleep. I couldn't stop looking at the heavens. It was wonderful. Venus can be seen low in the west after sunset, shining at magnitude minus 3.9 all month. Has an angular size of 10.6 arc seconds, increasing to 11.5 arc seconds. And you might think that would make it brighter. But in fact, as it does so, the area, the percentage of the surface that's illuminated by the sun decreases, and the two effects virtually exactly compensate, so the magnitude stays constant. It rises a little higher in the sky as April progresses, initially setting about one and a half hours after the sun, but increasing to about two hours by the end of the month. Its elevation increases at sunset from 18 to 25 degrees. So by month's end, it will become quite prominent in the evening sky. Venus starts the month in Aries, but moving higher in declination, that's towards the pole, it passes into Taurus on the 20th, before passing between the Hyades and Pleiades clusters on the 27th. Well, finally, what about the highlights this month? Well, to be honest, not all that many. On April the 2nd, before dawn, you can see Saturn and Mars together in Sagittarius. You need a clear sky, obviously, and a low western horizon 
But if so, you should be able to spot them both low down above the horizon. They're at their closest on the second when they're just 1.3 degrees apart. Now, you might well need binoculars to penetrate the sky's pre-dawn brightness. But please do not use them after the sun has risen. On April the 7th, again before dawn, you've got to get up early this month, Saturn and Mars will be seen with a third quarter moon, making a rather nice line in the sky. You see a waning third quarter moon lying to the upper left of first Mars and then Saturn. Now in the evening, on April the 18th, after sunset, you have a chance to see, and I say a chance, to see Venus and a very thin crescent moon. So looking west after sunset, and given a very low western horizon, you may spot Venus below a crescent moon just two days after new. Again, binoculars will almost certainly be needed, but don't use them until after the sun has set. That's a pretty tough observing challenge, I might say. The latter half of April, as I mentioned earlier, Jupiter is becoming more prominent in the south, while it's still possible to stay up late. Again, sadly, it won't lie too much above the horizon. And I usually try and say something about an object on the moon's surface to look at, and I must say that this last Sunday, it was about the 25th of um, March, the moon was very high in the sky just after first quarter. The scene was perfect, and I managed to get an image of the moon that I don't think I shall ever surpass, and I'll probably try and get that on the website. But I got a resolution of under an arc second, and it does show some very nice details, but that's another story. So on April the 6th and the 23rd, the Terminator is close to what is called the Alpine Valley. It's a rift across the Apennine Mountains that mark the edge of Mare Imbrium. So towards its upper edge, you should see a cleft called the Alpine Valley. It's about 7 miles wide and 79 miles long. As shown in the image, a thin rill runs along its length, which is quite a challenge to observe. I must say, I've never seen it, but I did image it recently. The dark crater Plato will be visible nearby. And you may also see the shadow cast by the mountain Mons Piton, lying not far away in Mare Imbrium. It's actually a very interesting part of the lunar surface. So, Let's hope we get some clearer nights, warmer nights as well, and enjoy your viewing of the night sky. Thanks for that, Fiona. And for our Antipodean listeners, here's Fiona Healy and Fiona Healy with the night sky where you are. Hi, this is Jasmine and Gabriella coming to you from Wellington, New Zealand, Aotearoa, here to talk to you about the southern night skies in the month of April. Kia ora everyone, Gabriella Perez here from Space Place of the Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. Seeing as April is Astronomy Month, it's a great time to cast your gaze upwards through the heavens and challenge yourself to find some of the more trickier objects. Mid-April probably best for viewing deep space objects as the month starts off with a very bright moon and we have a full moon on April 31st. So if we look to the north in the evening skies in April before the procession of planets fills up the sky, there are a lot of bright stars and deep space objects to look at. First up in the north, we'll see Sirius, the dog star, appearing in the northwest sky at dusk. And as the night goes on, the other bright stars will begin to reveal themselves as well. 
Sirius is a part of Canis Major, the big dog, the constellation that's also a part of our hunting summer tableau, which includes Orion, spotted easily by his bell, Tautoru here in New Zealand, and his two hunting companions, Canis Major and Canis Minor, both hot on his heels, appearing lower and lower as the month goes on, making way for our winter constellations that will be rising in the east. Below um, the two stars forming the single line body of Canis Minor, we find Gemini. The constellation is named after the twins Castor and Pollux in Greek mythology. Uh, the brightest stars are also named Castor and Pollux, and these are the heads of the twins, with the other faintest stars make the outline of the two bodies. And these stars are quite different. Pollux is an orange giant star about 35 light years away and is the brighter of the two twins. And uh, Castor is actually a six-tablet star system about 50 light years away. And Gemini is also home to the Eskino Nebula, also known as the Clown Face Nebula, which is a bipolar double-shell planetary nebula surrounded by a layer of gas that's used to form the outer layers of the star which is very similar to our own sun. And just beside Gemini, we find Cancer the Crab. Cancer is located between Leo the Lion, Leo looking a little bit more like a coat hanger in a stick figure form, and um, Gemini. Uh, Cancer is a little bit tricky to find because Cancer is the dimmest of the zodiac constellations. The stars form the shape of a Y, with the top end of the Y being its pincers of the crab, it's quite tricky to see with the naked eye, and uh, its brightest star is only about magnitude 3.5. Uh, Cancer is home to some famous deep spy- sky objects, including M66 and the Beehive Cluster. So M66 is a must-see in April. You can find it at the midpoint between Regulus and Leo and Procylon, which is the uh, brightest star in Canis Minor. Uh, between them is uh, this Messier object. It is the oldest close star cluster. It is quite old, between 3.5 to 5 billion years, which is quite incredible as stars and open star clusters generally tend to pull away from each other. And, uh, for example, our own sun could have been part of an open star cluster, but it's long since pulled away from its sister stars. Uh, so for this one to still be relatively close to one another um, at a uh, billion years old is quite incredible. Now, just below it, we can see uh, the Beehive Cluster. Uh, this is another great cluster to look at in the constellation of Cancer. And to give you some comparison in age, this cluster is only about 600 million years old. Uh, it is a spectacular sight through a telescope, uh, especially if you have a wide field of view. Uh, it is probably one of the biggest and brightest um, of these types of objects that we can see in our night sky. Now, although its real size is uh, about 11 light years across, it's not that dissimilar to um, Messier 66, which comes in at about 10 light years. It's just because it's a lot closer to us that it takes up a bigger portion of the night sky, which showcases a little bit the depth of the universe, because everything can seem quite flat when we're looking at our celestial sphere. Now, April is also a great time to go galaxy hunting as uh, Virgo, the Greek goddess of justice, is in prime position in our eastern sky. She'll be rising higher and higher every day. Um, This is the biggest, the second biggest constellation um, occupying quite a big area of the night sky, the biggest constellation being Hydra. 
And Virgo is located between Leo the Lion and Libra the Scales. Uh, Virgo is easily spotted thanks to its very bright star, Spiker. Uh, Spiker is a blue giant and is approximately 260 light years from our own solar system. It's actually one of the nearest massive double stars to our solar system. So Virgo, as I said before, is a constellation to keep your eye on for galaxy hunting as it is especially rich in galaxies due to the presence of many galaxy clusters, including the Virgo supercluster. Uh, this cluster's center is located uh, about 53.8 million light years away from the solar system. And the center is the Virgo supercluster, which is the largest cluster of galaxies, uh, which may contain some familiar faces. It's, of course, the local group, which includes the large Andromeda galaxy and our very own Milky Way. The Virgo cluster itself contains about 1,300 galaxies, some arguing that that number could be up to about 2,000 galaxies. Uh, within it, we can see a few highlights. Most notably is probably the brightest galaxy in the Virgo supercluster, which is Messier 49. And it was the first galaxy to be discovered by Charles Messier um, in this cluster. It is an elliptical galaxy with a visual magnitude of about 9.4, and it's about uh, 60 million light years um, away from us. Uh, it is actually currently gravitationally interacting with a small dwarf irregular galaxy as well. It contains some, uh, a lot of objects. It contains about 5,900 globular clusters um, and is about 10 billion years old. And uh, definitely a must-see if you get the opportunity. Um, there's about 11 Messier objects you can spot in the Virgo supercluster. Uh, sorry, in the constellation of Virgo. Um, Messier 58 is another highlight, is a barred spiral galaxy in Virgo. It's also one of the brightest galaxies in the Virgo supercluster, and it's got a visual uh, magnitude of about 10.5, and it's about 62 million light years away. Um, other highlights include the <laughs> famous Sombrero galaxy, uh, or Messier 104. Uh, it is a very bright nearby spiral galaxy. It has this very prominent uh, dust lane and halo of stars, and uh, and the globular clusters give this galaxy its name because it looks a bit like a sombrero, uh, and uh, it has quite a lot of energy and a lot of um, things happening within the sombrero center, as a lot of X-ray light has been detected from it, and uh, this X-ray emission coupled with the unusually high uh, central stellar velocities cause many astronomers to think that uh, there is a black hole at the Sombrero Center, a black hole about a billion times the mass of our sun, which is uh, quite mind-boggling. Hi, this is Jasmine coming to you from Victoria University of Wellington. And if you're hunting for planets this month, you're in luck. We can find Jupiter, Saturn and Mars in the eastern horizon from about 10.30pm onwards throughout April. Jupiter appears as a steady shining golden light in the Libra constellation after full dark. Libra is one of the signs of the zodiac. We can use the zodiac constellations to find the line of the ecliptic, the path across our skies along which all the planets in our solar system appear to travel. Now remember, planets shine and stars twinkle. Stars twinkle because they are so far away from us that they appear as pinpoints of light in the night sky. 
Because all the light is coming from a single point, its path is susceptible to atmospheric interference before it reaches our eyes here on Earth. Starlight is easily diffracted, its path altered as it passes through different pockets of air at different temperatures in our atmosphere. This bouncing around of starlight causes the apparent dimming and brightening that makes stars twinkle. The technical term is astronomical scintillation. Planets don't suffer from astronomical scintillation because they are so close to us. Their apparent size is larger than the pockets of hot or cold air in our atmosphere, so the path of their light is not changed very much before it reaches our eyes. But let's get back to Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system. He's named after the chief Roman god for his size and dominance of our skies. Using binoculars, you can observe the disk of Jupiter surrounded by four points of light, the Galilean moons, Io, Ganymede, Europa, and Callisto. The moons are named after the astronomer Galileo, who discovered them through his homemade telescope in 1610. Although Jupiter appears in the Libra constellation, it's easier to locate him using the Scorpius constellation as a guidepost. By looking for the classic hook shape that forms the tail of Scorpius, we can star jump to the left and northwards to find Jupiter. Scorpius was said to be a vicious scorpion sent by an angry Greek god to kill the hunter Orion, who boasted that he could kill any animal on earth. So that's why, as Orion sets in the west, Scorpius rises in the east to chase him across the skies. You can check your looking at Scorpius by looking for Antares, the heart of the scorpion, a bright red star located about halfway along the tail of Scorpius. Nearby, Sagittarius points his bow and arrow at his nasty neighbor Scorpius. Sagittarius is another zodiac constellation. Like Scorpius, he rises in the east from 10.30pm onwards in April. Sagittarius is a centaur from Greek mythology, half man, half horse. We can identify Sagittarius by looking for the teapot shape in his constellation. The spout is formed by the outstretched arm of Sagittarius, while his bent elbow forms the handle. Mars and Saturn rise along with Sagittarius throughout April. Sagittarius is a really special constellation because he is home to the most messier objects out of any constellation in our skies. Messier objects are deep sky objects like nebula and star clusters. We can look for the Lagoon and Shepherd Nebula just north of the spout of the teapot. The Lagoon Nebula, M8, is 4,100 light years away and is an emission nebula. It's one of only two nebulae that are actively forming stars that we can see with the naked eye. The Trifid Nebula, M20, is an easy target for small telescopes. It's about 5,200 light years away. It is an unusual composite, containing a reflection nebula, an admission nebula, and an open star cluster. But let's take one more look at Scorpius. Here in Aotearoa, we don't have scorpions, so we see this constellation as something quite different. We see it as Kemato Amawi, the fishhook of Maui, said to be the jawbone of Maui's great-great-grandmother that became the fishhook that Maui used to catch the giant fish that became the North Island of New Zealand, Te'ika Amawi. The story goes that Maui used his own blood as bait, so Antares, the heart of the scorpion, now becomes Rihua, the fiery one, that bright red blood bait.
The tale goes that Asmari dragged the giant fish to the surface of the Pacific Ocean with all his strength, that the fish gave an almighty heave, and the fish hook was ripped from the fish's mouth and flung into the skies. For it remains today to remind us of Maui's cunning and bravery. Let us turn southwards to look for another constellation that's very important to us here in Aotearoa, so important it even appears on our national flag, the Southern Cross. We're looking for a kite-shaped constellation made up of four bright stars lying on its side, the smaller fifth star is Epsilon Crucis. Although the Southern Cross is the smallest of the 88 official constellations, it is so important because it has guided navigators and explorers across the vast Pacific Ocean for hundreds of years, from Captain Cook and Abel Tasman all the way back to Coupe, who guided the first Mari Walker here more than 700 years ago. We can easily identify the one true Southern Cross using the pointers, Alpha Centauri and Beta Centauri that form part of the Who's of the Centaurus constellation. No other cross-shaped set of stars in the skies has these two bright stars nearby to point you in the right direction to the one true Southern Cross. Next to the Southern Cross, near the arm closer to the horizon, you can find the Jewel Box. It's just one degree southeast of Beta Crucis, the second brightest star of the Southern Cross. It's around 6,400 light-years away. It's one of the youngest known open star clusters at only 14 million years old. With a telescope of around 25 to 50 times magnification, we can distinguish the beautiful colors. The most luminous stars in the jewel box are supergiants and are easily some of the brightest stars we can see in the Milky Way. Star clusters like the jewel box can show us how the universe has evolved. Globular star clusters are like astronomical fossils. They're often fragments of smaller galaxies that were devoured by the formation of larger galaxies. Whereas open star clusters reveal the epic life cycle of stars from birth to death and the phenomenal recycling of star material by our very own universe. Another open star cluster nearby the Southern Cross is the Wishing Well, aka the Firefly Party Cluster or the Pincushion Cluster. It is part of the Carina constellation that forms the stern of the ship Argonavis, the vessel of Jason and the Argonauts. The Wishing Well lies at the part of Carina closest to Centaurus. The Wishing Well is described as a multi-hued group of stars that appear to glitter like coins at the bottom of a cosmic Wishing Well. It's about 1,300 light years away, but it's around 300 million years old. It contains around 400 stars, many of which are stunning binary stars that were first observed by the astronomer John Herschel in the 1830s. But for now, next time you turn your telescope or eyes to the sky, let us celebrate the rich history of scientific endeavor, exploration and wonder that has brought us the ability to see further into our universe than ever before. Thanks for that, Fiona and Fiona. And now on to the feedback. So we've had an email from Fiona Healy wishing us a happy vernal equinox. So our email from Fiona is, I'm an academic chemist and you guys have answered a couple of questions from me over the last two or three years. Many thanks. A few months ago, I asked a question, actually a clarification, about gamma ray bursts after the LIGO 2017 results. And your answer got me thinking about the nature of astronomy and science in the 21st century. Gamma ray bursts have been a mystery for many years and the topic had come up many times on the Jodcast. 
What were they? Were gamma ray bursts local, or were they cosmological? Then the LIGO result of two neutron stars merging solved the GRB problem, and GRB suddenly became old news. My question asked for clarification, and your response was, slightly, merging neutron stars, what more do you want to know? Uh, so this got me thinking, uh, more modern science, um, and nearly all of chemistry, is not like this. Sure, there are many discoveries to be made, uh, graphene is a good recent example, but actually there are rather few um, WTF mysteries out there these days. Except in astronomy and medicine, what is dark matter? What is the cause of Alzheimer's? What are fast radio bursts? Is Parkinson's disease caused by an environmental factor? If so, what is it? Dark energy, the obesity epidemic, uh, etc. In both astronomy and medicine, there are things that are truly unknown. So, keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much for that, Fiona. Um, I, we, will, we will strive to keep up the good work. On Facebook, Fiona Healy, uh, and in relation to the March main episode, says, Wonders will never cease. And we've got a note from our producer here saying, could be a reference to our top-notch content, or that we're out on time for once. Wonders never cease, indeed. And also Fiona Healy says, uh, thank you for answering the question in the last episode, February Extra. And uh, we had uh, another message from Fiona Healy to say that uh, they just finished the, the March main episode and uh, to say top quality as always. So thanks for that, Fiona. Uh, feedback is always very welcome. And if you do want to get in touch with the Fiona show, you can do so via the website of our sister podcast at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on our website. Thanks to Fiona Healy and Fiona Healy for the interview. The editors were Fiona Healy, Fiona Healy, Fiona Healy and Fiona Healy. The producer was Fiona Healy. Until next time, be grand to one another and good night.